Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're returning this morning to our studies through 1 Peter. And this morning we'll be looking at chapter 1, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 3. This is God's Word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. God saved you in order to make you holy. We saw that a couple weeks ago when we looked at the earlier portion of this chapter 1 of 1 Peter. That's an ominous thing to think about. We rejoice that we've been saved, but we need to be continually reminded that God saved us in order to make us holy like Himself. The first half of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, in that portion of the chapter, Peter rejoices in, his, in our salvation. He just totally exalts in the whole idea that this holy God would look upon us in our sinful state and save us. He talks about how we were, he, the Lord, the Father has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And having exalted in our salvation, he goes on to talk about how that salvation is secure even through trials because of God's sustaining grace. Matter of fact, because God is so good to us, he makes our salvation stronger and more secure even as we go through trials. And then he talks about how the prophets spoke of this salvation. We can be even more sure that it's true because the prophets all spoke of this salvation in Christ centuries before it was all accomplished. And they, too, wanted to see it fulfilled desperately. The second half of chapter 1, as we looked at last time, talks about how we not only should, but must respond to this great saving work that the Lord has done on our behalf. Beginning in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be holy in all of your conduct. God has saved you by grace. He has delivered you into His eternal kingdom. Now, Be holy. That's your life's calling. That's what you're to be about, is being holy. In the portion that I've read this morning, at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, P. 
Peter begins to talk about the means of that holiness. How do we become holy? And he focuses in on the Word of God itself. This passage is about the Word of God. How do we become holy? Makes sense. God tells us how we become holy. He's revealed to us His will. He's revealed to us His law. He's revealed to us His character. So if you want to be holy, read the Word, hear the Word, and then do the Word. And so it'd be almost very tempting for Peter at this point just to say, God calls you to be holy. He saved you. He's called you now to live a life of holiness. Here's God's Word. Now do it. Be holy. Work at it. Strive with all your effort. And when we hear it that way, and sometimes we do hear it that way, that can be very discouraging. Because we fail so often. Our desire to do what the Word says is so weak. And we become filled with guilt and shame and discouragement. There's a classic Bob Newhart skit I came across again on the internet a few week, couple weeks ago. Bob Newhart was a classic comedian from, what, late 60s, 70s, was kind of his heyday. But not long ago, he did a skit uh, where he was playing a psychologist in his office. And at the beginning of the skit, a, a nervous young woman walks into his office and he sits her down in the chair and he begins, and you know, if you know Bob Newhart at all, very low-key, understated way, very calmly starts to draw her out and, you know, tell me about your problem. And so she begins to share with him, uh, you know, that she has this case of severe claustrophobia. She's fearful of being buried in a box. And so Bob listens for a little while and he says, now, I want you to know that typically my counseling sessions only last about five minutes. And she looks at him kind of oddly, and, and she says, oh, okay. And he said, so after having heard her fears about being buried in a box, he says, now, I'm going to give you my advice. It's two words. I want you to listen carefully. I want you to remember them. And then I want you to go home, and I want you to apply them to your life. She says, okay. And he leans across his desk and says, stop it. And of course, she's taken aback. What do you mean, stop it? Just stop it! She says, but, but, you know, my, my, you know, I've, I've always had this fear from when I, no, stop it! You know, he won't listen to any of her excuses. And so finally, she's dumbfounded. She says, okay. And she, she looks at her, he looks at his watch and says, okay, well, that's about three minutes. And she says, well, can you, can you help me with any of my other problems? He says, well, what are your other problems? Well, she says, well, I'm bulimic, you know, I, I, I have an eating disorder. Well, stop it, he says. Any other problems? Says, well, I have destructive relationships with men. Stop it, he says. And I won't kill it. Go, you know, it's a, this is your Google search for the week. Go home and look it up online. I won't, I won't blow the, the whole joke by telling you how it ends. But, as, as a pastor who does some work in counseling, I can't tell you how uh, tempting it is sometimes to lean across my desk when people are sharing their problems and say, just stop it. But wisely, I know better than that because 
Honestly, that doesn't do any good. Sometimes when you read God's Word, it feels like that. You're reading and it says, you know, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. And it sounds like God is saying to you, stop it. And you're like, but God, I don't know how. Well, I think if you read carefully what Peter is saying here, you'll see that he's going much deeper than just telling us to stop it. Matter of fact, look at the, I think the key phrase, in order to understand what Peter is saying in this passage, the key phrase you need to look at is for the end of verse 22 where he says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, it shouldn't be surprising to you that when it talks about doing God's will or keeping God's law, that Peter would raise the issue of the need to love one another. Because isn't that what the Lord Jesus taught us? That keeping the law means loving God and loving your neighbor. That's really what the law is all about. So when the law says do this, do this, do this, or don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, it's saying love God, love your neighbor. And we understand that. Matter of fact, Peter actually shows us that he's looking below our outward actions to what's going on in our heart. If you look at what he says in the first verse of chapter 2, here again, Peter's subject is holiness. But notice how he describes holiness. What does holiness look like to Peter? In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Notice everything he refers to there is essentially an attitude, not an action. There are actions that reflect those attitudes, but those are all attitudes. And they're attitudes, really, you know, if we're to love our neighbor... Basically, everything that he lists here is how to have an attitude against your neighbor. He says, you know, malice. The word malice means wanting to see bad things happen to others for whatever reason. But it's a desire in your heart to see bad things happen to other people. Deceit is lying to others. A desire to see other people deceive for your own benefit. That's what it means to hate someone. Hypocrisy is putting on a false front in front of others. It's an attitude of hypocrisy. An attitude of envy, he lists. In other words, wanting what other people have. Not just wanting something, but wanting what somebody else has to their detriment. And then slander, of course, is... That's an action, but it's based in a desire to harm somebody else with your words. And so Peter looks at these attitudes that produce sinful actions, and basically he's saying, stop it. But stop it for the right motivation. Stop it because you love your brother. You don't hate him anymore. And there's the key. Stop doing bad things because you love God and love your neighbor. Start doing the right things because you love God and love your neighbor. It's not enough just to do the right thing or to not do the wrong thing. You need to do it for the right reason, from the right heart, from the right motivation. It should come from a sincere, eager desire to please others and to please God. But that still can be very frustrating to us, can it? Because how can Jesus, how can Peter, how can anyone command you to love anyone, God or your neighbor? Jesus did it all the time, didn't he? You think of the God. How many times do you say, love your neighbor, love God? The scripture's full of the command to love, but, you know, because of our weak and 
inadequate understanding of love, you know, we tend to think of love as, as, as that desire. As love is, is the emotion. It's the feeling that drives you to do the right things. Well, how can that be commanded? Sometimes Christians will say love is action. Love is a verb. Love is doing the right thing. Well, that's not entirely the case. Scripturally speaking, love is doing the right thing, doing the sacrificial thing, doing an act of service to another, but doing it because you want to see them prosper. You want to see them blessed. You want to see them stronger, better, happier, more joyful. It's, you gotta do it for the right reason. Jesus taught us over and over that doing the right thing outwardly while having your heart in the wrong place is not acceptable to God. So love is action, but it's action based in the right desire. I shared in the Sunday school class a couple weeks ago after many months of working through studying and teaching through 1 John, I came up with this definition of what love is according to Scripture, especially according to 1 John. It's finding your joy and satisfaction in prospering others in the eyes of God. In other words, not their definition of what prosperity may be for them, but in God's definition of what prosperity is for them. Finding your joy and satisfaction in seeing others prosper as God sees them. You see what I'm saying? It's doing the right things, but doing it out of an eager desire that others prosper. So how do we pursue holiness out of love for God and love for our neighbor? You see, this is so important because it's the difference between legalism and real Christianity. Real Christianity does the right thing out of the right heart and the right motivation. And this is where we get to the true power of the Word of God. This is why Peter points us to the Word of God. He says some amazing things about this, this book that God has given us in this passage. Before we go to what Peter says, let me take you over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is what it says. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How are the thoughts and intentions of your heart ever going to change? They're not going to, unless the Word of God penetrates to that point of your life. But here's the good news of this passage, is that once the Word of God penetrates to the very core of your being, to the thoughts and intentions of your heart, it changes you. It's powerful to transform us. What does it do, according to Peter? Well, the first effect of the Word of God in our lives that he mentions is that it makes us clean. It makes us clean. Verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Notice he talks about the work of the Word of God in the heart before he talks about our ability to love one another. The work of the Word of God must come first. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now there is a sense in which he could be talking about the regular sanctification that we go through every day. We, pu- we do purify ourselves, not by our own efforts, but by the Spirit of God working in us, by obeying the truth. But he's actually not referring to that in context. He's referring to that original act of obedience when we obeyed the gospel. 
when the gospel came to us and it said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, when we obeyed that message of the Word of God, then we purified our souls. We made our souls clean in the sight of God. Not because we did anything, but because we believed in what Christ had done for us. He says, look down at verse 25 of chapter 1. He refers to the good news that was preached to you. The gospel, the good news. By obeying the gospel. It's interesting that the response of faith in the gospel is an act of obedience. It's accepting what the gospel says to be true. Trusting in it. Believing in it. And when we did that, our souls were purified, made clean in the sight of a holy God. Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God comes, we hear, the Holy Spirit opens our ears, He opens our eyes, we understand, we see Christ crucified, we see Christ risen from the dead, we believe, we trust, and we're made clean. And that's where the work of the Word begins. The Word can't do anything else in the depths of our hearts until it first makes our hearts clean through the gospel message. There was a wretched man one day who cried out to Jesus. The Scriptures tell us that he was, quote, full of leprosy. Leprosy was a hideous disease, but for someone who was full of leprosy, If you know anything about the destructive nature of that disease, he must have been terribly unsightly. Body just eaten away by this disease. Even probably not even almost identifiable as a human being because of the effect of this horrid disease. It says this man cried out to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, as a Jewish person, that had all kinds of ceremonial meaning tied to it. Clean, in other words, cleansed and able to enter into the temple, able to enter into worship, able to be a part of God's people. But really, any true Jewish person of faith understood that what you were asking for is to be made clean in the eyes of God, to be restored to a right relationship with God as a sinner and to be acceptable to Him and therefore acceptable to His people. That's what He's crying out for. And Jesus reached out and touched Him in all of His hideousness, it says, and said, I will be clean. I will be clean. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, if you're saved, there's a point in your life where in all your hideousness of your sin and your corruption and your you know that Jesus reached out and touched you by grace and said I will be clean watched a movie a few years ago called Slumdog Millionaire if you remember that movie had a very uh, affecting scene in it where the young orphan boy who lived in the slums of the city in in India this young orphan boy uh, was uh, It's meant to be a funny scene, but I didn't find it all that funny when I thought about it in in spiritual terms. He was locked by his brother in a public outhouse to get back at him for something. And his brother knew that this was a particularly mean thing to do him because this little boy's favorite actor that he just thought the world of was coming to visit his part of the, the slums that day. And so if he's locked in this public outhouse, he wouldn't be able to see this 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 actor is once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see this famous actor. 
And so Jamal, the little boy, he's locked in the outhouse. He doesn't know what to do, and he finally figures out if he's going to see this actor, he only has one choice. And so he holds his nose, steps up on the toilet, and jumps into the hole. And then he comes out from underneath the wood structure and comes up out of the swamps where the outhouse was and comes up into the streets of the city totally covered in feces, human excrement. And there's these crowds all crowded around his favorite actor. And as this Jamal, as he comes running up to the crowd, the crowd, not surprisingly, starts to part like the Red Sea. And all of his smelling and, and grossness and disgustedness, he's able to run up and hold up his picture for his favorite actor to sign it, get his autograph. But just as I thought about that scene, I thought, you know, spiritually speaking, when God looked at us in all of our shame and our guilt, we were far more disgusting to him than that little boy was. Far more disgusting. And yet Jesus touched us by his grace and said, I'm willing, be clean. The power to make us clean comes from the cross. Jesus, as the righteous judge who hates sin, could not just declare us clean unless the penalty was paid. And so the word, not just any word, but the word of the gospel, the word that Jesus has died for our sins, he's raised from the dead, that word has made us clean. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15:3, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So that's the first work that the Word must do in the deep recesses of our hearts. It must make us clean through the message of the Gospel. But secondly, Peter goes on to say, the Word of God gives us life. Look at back at the beginning of chapter 1. There he says that the Lord, the Father, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's changed us from within. We're talking about that need to have a new heart, new desires. Desires that are pleasing to God. Well, it comes from being born again. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, if you are able to truly love your brother and to love God, it's because God has given you new birth. He's given us new life. And Peter here in verse 23 of chapter 1 shows us how that new life comes. He says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, to me, that's one of the most amazing statements about the word of God in all of scripture, that the word itself imparts life into us. We are born again by the power of the word alone. He compares it to a seed. Because we understand that when you take a seed, it appears like it's just a Dead little object, tiny little object. But when you put it in the ground, it produces life. There's a, there's a, there's a, some energy, some energy of life within that seed that creates growth, that creates ultimately fruit from that seed. The scriptures are not just a record of truth. Peter calls them living and abiding. It's the living and abiding Word of God. He says it's imperishable life that it gives. 
And of course, my mind immediately goes to Ezekiel 37, where the prophet Ezekiel was told to go to this big, vast valley. And in the valley, there was nothing but old bones that had been there for a long time. They were dry bones. All elements of flesh had been corrupted and, 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 and had wasted away. Nothing left there but old, dry bones. And God said to the prophet Ezekiel, speak to the bones. And I'm sure that Ezekiel thought, why? What good can my words do? But when he spoke the word of God, the bones came together and the ligaments appeared and the, and the muscles appeared and the flesh appeared and people were born, living, obedient people who stood forth as a great army. Now the sequence of events there is important. God could have played that out where the people came alive and then Ezekiel was told to preach to them, but that order was important. He said, preach the word of God to them and watch them come alive. And I want to tell you, I have that privilege many, many times of preaching the word and watching God make people come alive. There's nothing like it to see it happen. God spoke the universe into existence by the power of His Word alone. His Word has power to bring life. Jesus spoke to a tomb that contained the body of Lazarus and Lazarus came alive. That's the power of the Word of God. Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus taught that consistently. The Holy Spirit and the Word together bring life. That's always true. When the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed and taught and spoken and shared, the Spirit is there and the Spirit and the Word together produce life. And when life is there, fruit is born. That's the key to vitality in a church. Preaching, teaching, living, sharing the Word of God. That's where the vitality of a church comes from. Because the Spirit has promised that He will always use the Word to bring life. Remember what Peter said to Jesus. When people were rejecting Jesus, walking away from Jesus because He didn't meet their expectations, Jesus said to His disciples, Are you going to leave too? And remember what Peter said? To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That brings me to the last one, just quickly. The last effect of the Word of God in our lives is that it nourishes that life that it gives. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. Now it sounds like, at first he's saying, be like babies. And that seems to contradict where other parts of the New Testament says stop acting like babies. But he's not actually saying be spiritually immature. What he's saying is crave the word the same way that a newborn infant craves its mother's milk. I don't know if you've ever been around a newborn infant or not, but that's a very strong craving. <laughs> you've ever heard of an infant that was hungry cry? You just It's amazing that that loud, that volume of a sound can come out of such a small thing because they crave that milk so much. P. 
Peter is saying we need to develop that craving, that longing for the Word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you cannot live day in and day out without the Word of God constantly flowing into your life? Christ said that we need His presence in our lives. Remember John 15? He says, abide in Me, and then you will bear fruit. Abide in Me, then you will live and you will bear fruit. He said that over and over and over. But but how do we abide in Christ? We don't see Him physically. We know He's here spiritually. But how do we abide in Him? Well, He told us in John 15. He goes on to say, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. As the Father has loved Me, so I have loved you. Abide in My love. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. Do you catch the connection? If you want Christ to abide in you, then you need His Word to abide in you. There is such a close union between Christ and His Word in Scripture that you cannot separate them. If you want a strong presence of Christ in your life, you must have a strong presence of the Word of God in your life. I said to my wife, we were walking along the street last night, and I said to her, you know, it's just hard for me. Satan whispers in my ear when I preach a message like this, saying, you know, you can't stand there in front of God's people and tell them to have daily devotions again. They're sick of you hearing that kind of thing. You know, how many times can you say to people, have your daily devotions? But in the context of what Peter is saying here, do you get the importance of it? This needs to be the very breath that you, the spiritual breath that you breathe. It's your spiritual food. It's your spiritual drink. It's the only way to be strong, to grow, and to become the holy child of God that you were saved to become. It's by having the Word of God in your life consistently. The Word consistently is important.